Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, June 12th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, Motley Fool contributor and banking expert. Hey, John, how's it going? It's going great, Gabby. How are you doing? I am doing pretty good. Um, I had an exciting weekend. I was volunteering at Pride with the Motley Fool, so that was really exciting. And I went rock climbing. What a fulfilling weekend. Nice. That is a very fulfilling weekend. I basically spent the weekend mediating disputes between my five-year-old twin son. So, (laughs) (laughs) kind of like the, the referee in a boxing ring. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm very impressed. My brother also has twins, and they are young and also a handful. You have the patience and energy of a saint. Um, talking about patience and energy, let's turn to Congress. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Choice Act, um, which stands for Creating Hope and Opportunity for Investors, Consumers, and Entrepreneurs. Um, another in a long line of acronyms that are kind of just like jammed in together to like try and make something that's fun to say. Uh, so, the Choice Act just passed the House. Um, on Friday, I believe. And the whole thing with the Choice Act, the reason that we're talking about it on the show is that it is basically there to repeal Dodd-Frank, which is what was what was uh, regulating all of the banking stuff that we've been talking about for literally, what, two years now, Maxfield? <laughs> yeah, basically. Or five years. Well, I guess you and I have been talking about it, yeah, for, for, for two years now. Yeah, I mean... And, you know, Go ahead. And one of the ways that I think is really helpful to kind of think about the Financial Choice Act is that, you know, in all industries, and particularly in banking, you can look at it through the, the lens of cycles, different types of cycles, the business cycle, the credit cycle, um, cycles in consumer confidence. But another cycle that you can use to think about you know, not only in the financial services sector, but in all sectors, is the regulatory cycle. And specifically, in terms of whether the industry has more power or the regulators have more power at any particular point in time. And after the financial crisis, when the Dodd-Frank Act was passed on largely partisan lines, basically just supported by the Democrats, that shifted a lot of power away from the industry over to regulators. And basically what the Financial Choice Act does is it it reverses that. And it was passed in the House, like you said, last week on largely partisan lines, but the partisan lines were different. This time it was the Republicans supporting it and the Democrats not supporting it. And what it tries to do is it tries to take that power that Dodd-Frank gave to the regulators and give it back to the industry. Yeah, um, and the the bill is sponsored, unsurprisingly, by a man named Jeb Henserling, who is a Republican. as with most things political, uh, things are, are falling along party lines. And I actually just want to take a, an opportunity to say that um, Maxfield and I are going to do our best to stay unbiased throughout this discussion. But you know, everyone is a person, and we all have opinions, and our opinions don't necessarily reflect that of the Motley Fool. Um, but we're going to try and give you like an informed, as objective as possible discussion. Um, my anthropology roots tell me that there's no way to have a completely unbiased discussion. So. I'm going to leave it at that and um, talk a little bit more about kind of the philosophy behind the Choice Act. Um, Basically, a lot of people don't like Dodd-Frank. They think that it 
puts too much um, pressures on the banks. It, it's too hard for them to to make money the way that Dodd Frank is structured. Um, and there's like a few different parts to it. Um, the the big parts of of the Financial Choice Act, but I think that the one that a lot of people are focused on is the Financial Choice Act is looking to to end too big to fail. Right, and you know, kind of to your point, Gabby, about the the partisan basis. Of, let me talk and address that before I jump into the too big to fail part. Sure. But the the one thing to keep in mind is that even though Dodd Frank was passed on partisan basis, and at least the Financial Choice Act made it through the House on a partisan basis. The fact of the matter is, is that almost everybody agrees, most knowledgeable sources agree, that Dodd-Frank went too far. And I'm somebody who thinks that there needs to be a robust regulatory framework around the banking system, just because banks are so highly leveraged, and because they play a role in the monetary system of the United States that are kind of, to a certain extent, just an extension of the federal government. So you can't let, you know, banks go out there and kind of just do what they want because they're acting, in a sense, on the part of, of, of taxpayers. So, so I think that's some good context to keep in mind. Yeah. But Dodd-Frank, almost, most, almost everybody would, would agree that it did go too far. So now the question is, how, how far do you tailor it back? Yeah, and to to get into that about being an extension of the government, it's it's not just that with the systemically important financial institutions, it's it's not just our country, it's the entire world is tied into these financial systems. So people get concerned that if they fail, like it it's going to be <laughs> to borrow a term from the Vietnam era domino effect with other people's economies. Um so it's it's right. you know, it, it, there's a lot of feelings Riding on this, and it, it, a lot of it depends on how you view economic theory. Um, I, I think like ninety percent agree with you that the that Dodd Frank potentially went too far. Um, I don't know that the Choice Act is the answer either. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. Anyway, we'll, we'll get a little bit more into that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the actual components of the Financial Choice Act and like what they look like, what they kind of mean in terms of like existing legislation. Um, like I said earlier, uh, too big to fail. That's like one of the big key components, ending too big to fail, of the Financial Choice Act. Right. So, if we go back to the financial crisis, here's kind of an overarching way to think about this too big to fail component. You had Citigroup, Bank of America, and AIG you also have your Lehman Brothers, your Bear Stearns, these very large financial institutions. And these financial institutions hold trillions of dollars in assets on their balance sheets and oversee a large chunk of the deposits that you and I, you know, our deposits, you know, everybody else's deposits. So if one of those were to fail, it could cause catastrophic damage to the economy. And in fact, if you go back to the Great Depression, the thing that caused the Great Depression or transformed it from just a normal everyday recession, or not everyday, I guess not recession the other day, but just a typical recession into a Great Depression were the failure of a bunch of banks. And so that informed this whole too big to fail idea where even though it is extremely unpalatable to go in and bail out these huge firms with these executives that make tens of millions of dollars a year, 
and to basically save them from their own mistakes, even though that's very unpalpable from on almost every level. It does save the U.S. economy. Well, what the Choice Act does is it tries to reduce the ability of regulators to step in and bail these banks out. And now, let me be clear. There is a very solid theoretical framework behind that because the thought process is that, look, if you go in and bail out these big banks and they know you're going to bail them out in the future, they have much less incentive to act responsibly. And so that's kind of that whole thought process. And if you remember, if you go back to the financial crisis, the term moral uh, or what was the uh, – I was totally went blank uh, on on the term. But if you go back to the financial crisis, this is one of the main arguments that they asserted. So, you know, what the Hinchling – what Hinchling's act tries to do is to try to dial that back, and it does it in in a couple of different ways. Number one, it removes – the regulators' authority to take over these organizations that are troubled and liquidate them in an orderly way, and it transfers that authority over into the bankruptcy code. So, and just just a just a quick um, side note for listeners: this is called the orderly liquidation authority. So that's OLA, which you might see floating around if you're reading about this online. Um, that is actually like codified into law, and it's the way that. The government kind of stepped in and was and made sure that there was like an orderly liquidation during the most recent financial crisis of banks like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. Right. And the, the term I was thinking about earlier was moral hazard, and that that that's the hazard that you know if you're going to step in and bail some you know an institution out, that institution then has less incentive to act responsibly. And that, and like I said, that's very that's grounded in theory. And it's actually really so, funny the, the, because earlier you were talking about spending the weekend refereeing between your two your two children and this is like this is almost just a parenting concept right like if you reward bad behavior you're going to keep getting bad behavior exactly that's exactly right yeah and all parents can understand that and another important thing it does in that too big to fail context is that it seeks to restrict the federal reserve's discount window lending to what's known as Baggage dictum. Okay, so there's a lot a of words in there. There's a lot of words. What is the discount window lending, or what is sorry? What, exactly. what is discount? I'm sounding yeah. like an old person. What is the Facebook? <laughs> what so, is discount window lending? The discount window is when a bank gets into trouble. One of the things that will happen is that there, its depositors will know it's in trouble, so they will all run on the bank at the same time to withdraw their deposits. That's known as a bank run. But the problem with the bank run is that because banks are so leveraged and they only hold a small amount of cash, actual cash, in terms of relative to the deposits that they have, that can cause them to go to be completely illiquid. They can run out of cash trying to satisfy their depositors. But what the discount window does is it allows the bank to then take some of its assets on its balance sheet go to the Federal Reserve, use those assets as collateral, and then get cash from the Federal Reserve to satisfy depositors and to thereby stop or prevent a bank run. So bank is... And it's working, right? Go on. And it, it, it's mostly working, right? Because that was actually like an, a problem. Like if you watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life or movies like that, like people would actually make runs on the bank, like physically go there and withdraw all their, all their deposits. And that was a huge problem during the Great Depression. I don't know of a modern bank run, do you? 
it, it happened with um, the the name of the bank is escaping me right now, but it happened with a major bank that was based in California during the financial crisis. Um, and it's that it's actually that it was that bank that was taken over and turned into One West, which was the institution that was associated with Steve Mnuchin, who's now the Treasury Secretary. Um, but so it does still happen. It is much less frequent because there is FDIC deposit insurance mm. now as well. That that so that would reduce the incentive for people to have to feel like they need to run on the bank and take their deposits out because the FDIC will be there to stand you know to stand behind the banks anyway. But so what Bagot's dictum does is it says that the Federal Reserve should only allow banks to access the discount window. Or, or it says that the, the way that the, discount, the Federal Reserve should use the discount window is to lend freely and early in times of crisis, which is what happened last time, but it should only do so to, quote, solvent firms and against co- good collateral at high interest rates. And it's that high interest rates part that's really significant because the idea there is that if you are using a punitive interest rate, banks are going to be less inclined to use the discount window. And if they're less inclined to use the discount window in times of crisis, the thought is that ahead of time, they will be much more careful about the quality of the assets they put on their balance sheet and the ability to turn those into cash in the public markets as opposed to having to go to the discount window of the Federal Reserve. And you have just revealed the the. I guess, the disconnect between Democrats and Republicans, which is that Republicans believe that banks can be forced to be responsible enough to take care of themselves, and Democrats do not. And that's why they have all this extra, and that's why they're they're pushing for all this extra regulation. Um, Right now, that falls along partisan lines. You know, whatever you think is up to you, but that's that's basically what's going on. Yeah, and, and I will say that, to take politics out of this, you know, I've studied banks pretty intensely for a number of years. And I will tell you that in history, the thing that we know is that you need a strong and independent central bank, but particularly, you need it at all times, but particularly in times of crisis. So you do want to be really careful in terms of the, both the authorities you give to a central bank in that situation, and in this case, the authorities that you take away from it. But again, this is something that, you know, you know, it, it, it will get worked out and the pendulum swings back and forth between regulators and industry. And right now, this is a bill that swings it way back to on the other side. I would say, too, just like Dodd-Frank went too far, uh, swinging the pendulum uh, in the favor of regulators, Ken Schilling's act seems to me to go too far in the other direction, which makes sense given that Dodd-Frank was partisan on the Democratic side and the Financial Choice Act is partisan on the Republican side. Yeah. Um, actually, you gave me a good segue earlier to, to kind of slide into this next kind of big thing that the Act is going to do, which is um, it's going to significantly cut down on the authority of regulatory agencies. Um, I think one of the most important things to note is that they're going to um, subject financial regulatory agencies to the RAINS Act. Um, the, the RAINS Act basically says that any agency that wants to impose um, a rule that costs more than $100 million a year needs to run it by Congress first. And if Congress fails to approve a rule in 70 days after it's been proposed, then the rule would go away. Like, it would be null and void. Um, Which is hard, because if you have like partisan control of committees, that means that 
rules that would go against whatever the nature of that that committee is at the moment can just sit for 70 days and never even get heard and then you know it doesn't happen and that that means that regulation is going to happen much more slowly right and and so the way it works now is that the federal reserve uh the sec the cfpb all these different regulatory agencies they are given the and, and this isn't just in the financial services arena this is across all regulatory agencies and in all industries that in order to regulate their industries they are given the authority to pass rules that you know like the consumer financial protection bureau like pass rules about appropriate you know, products that can be marketed to customers and those rules they, there is a long process where they get insight from, from the industry and other interested parties but then those regulatory agencies have the power to put those rules into place and to require the industry to follow them. Well, what the, what the Financial Choice Act would do is that it would add another layer in that step, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but here's the problem. That additional layer is congressional approval of these rules. And you can imagine that that really adds a lot of complication to that whole process. So it's not like you're just adding another thing that, that just one more hurdle. You're, you're adding an extremely high hurdle that, depending on who's in control of Congress and Senate at, at any particular point in time, these regulatory agencies may not be able to jump over. But again, I think that's probably the whole point of subjecting them to the RAINS Act, which was passed earlier this year. Right. It's to reduce the amount of federal legislation that exists. That's that's really what the point of it is. But it's hard because. Yes, like maybe regulatory agencies shouldn't just be making up rules without Congress's approval. But on the other hand, Congress takes a really long time to do things sometimes. So sometimes agencies come up with stuff in order to protect people or help people, and then eventually it gets actually codified into law. But until then, like they're kind of just responding quickly to the needs as they see them. So it, it, it's this really hard push and pull that you have with government. Um, Let's talk a little bit also about the Fed, which you mentioned um, is going to be affected by this act, and it's it's definitely it's it's hard because the Fed has also been subject to the Reins Act as well. Right, and, and and so there's one other piece to this actually. So it's not only the Reins Act that they would subject uh, the regulators to; it's also they would subject the regulators to the appropriations process, mm. and that's a really important thing because so right now the. Let's take the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is actually a, an agency within the Federal Reserve. So you have, and, which, and the Federal Reserve is an independent agency. So you have these multiple layers of independence. But one of the principal pieces of independence is that, in the case of the Federal Reserve, it is a profit-making entity. It has a huge balance sheet full of assets that earn interest income. So it doesn't have to go to Congress to, to get money to operate, which gives it independence. From Congress. The same thing is true with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and don't quote me exactly on this, but since it was put into operation, it, in, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, it has issued a total of something like $12 billion, $11, $12 billion worth of fines to the industry. And it uses those fines, it can use those fines to do, among other things, fund its own operations. So it, too, is kind of detached from that, you know, it's kind of or insulated from that the political process that is a part of the appropriations process. And what the Financial Choice Act does 
is it would then require, it would take away that independence and require these institutions to go to Congress for um, the funding, which would have a significant impact on them. Yeah, um, and that's that's one of the big criticisms of the CFPB uh, that that it's that its critics levy at it is that the CFPB can might start just issuing fines just because it has a financial incentive to, as opposed to doing it because the fines really need to be, you know, issued. So that's kind of where that financial choice act like section is is that's what it's trying to get at. Right. And then kind of to your point, Gabby, about going straight at the Federal Reserve. So, you know, the Federal Reserve is one of those institutions that it is a lot of people, people either don't know anything about it or they love it or they hate it or they don't know anything about it and they love it or they hate it. And and one of the things that people tend to think about when they think about the, the, the Federal Reserve is that it's some sort of like conspiratorial entity that is you know, trying to, you know, that controls the money supply and does so for the economic elite and things like that. And, and one, of the concern, one of the reasons that these kind of conspiracy theories are able to um, kind of uh, grow and, and, and take on the form that they're able to take is because it is a, not, it's a relatively non-transparent organization, and particularly when it comes to managing the money supply. So... One of the main, another main principle of the Financial Choice Act is to increase the transparency of the Federal Reserve, both in terms of, you know, just its overall operations and in terms of the way it manages the money supply. And what I mean by managing the money supply is when it decides to raise or lower interest rates, because that is the lever that causes the money, the money supply to expand or contract. Yeah, and it's not just that either. It's, um, for example, the stress tests. No one's a hundred percent sure what's in them. Exactly. So the stress tests right now. So these are tests that happen once a year for for large banks. That the, the purpose of them is to see how they will perform in a hypothetical economic scenario that is analogous to the financial crisis. And these are. This is actually a very good piece. This is a, a you know very good piece of the way of kind of the, the, the regulatory pie, if you will, in the banking industry because it, it it keeps bankers' eyes on you know making sure that the assets they put on their balance sheet you know aren't going to subject them to massive losses if and when the economy turns down like it like it inevitably will. But the issue with the financial with the stress test is that when the banks submit all the information to the Federal Reserve for the stress test and when the banks are going through their planning process in terms of structuring their balance sheet and their operations uh, in a way that will um, help them make it through the stress test, is that the Federal Reserve doesn't actually give them the models, the exact models that the Federal Reserve is using in the course of the stress test. So the banks are kind of flying blind in this regard. And if you talk to bankers, all, most all of them will say that they think the stress tests are a good thing. And I'm talking about the bankers, of the CEOs of the very large banks in this country. So they're the ones on the most, stri- most stringent stress test requirements. They will almost universally say that they think the stress tests are a good thing. But they will also almost universally complain about the fact that the Federal Reserve doesn't share the models it uses in the course of the stress test. So banks are just flying blind. Yeah, and that actually... Um 
is kind of paired with another aspect of the of the Choice Act, which is that um, they are proposing that if banks hold a certain amount of money on their balance sheet, essentially as a, as an emergency fund, um, that they won't be subject to quite as much regulation as they are now. Right. So one of the main narratives that emerged from the financial crisis was that the reason the crisis was able to metastasize the way it did was because banks were under were over leveraged. They were undercapitalized, which means that so your typical bank will hold like a dollar's worth of equity for ten dollars worth of assets. Well, at the time you had banks like Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, companies like that that were leveraged. Like Lehman Brothers, at a certain certain point, was leveraged by a factor of something like. 30 to 1. So what that means is that if its assets fell by just 3%, the value of its assets fell by just 3%, it would render it completely insolvent. So what the, the Dodd-Frank, or what the Financial Choice Act, well, so in the, in, the, in the wake of the financial crisis, all these additional capital rules came in to require banks not only hold more capital, but dictated the type of capital that they were supposed to hold. Well, what the Financial Choice Act does is it says, look, Let's get away with, let's do away with all these complicated capital rules. And these capital rules are incredibly complicated. They say, let's get away with all these complicated capital rules. Let's replace them with a simple leverage ratio, where banks, all you do is just compare how much equity a bank has or capital a bank has to its assets. And you just use that simple ratio. And if banks hold, you know, meet the threshold laid out in the Financial Choice Act, then they can be exempt from all of these additional regulations that Dodd-Frank is imposing, in particular, on large banks. So Dodd-Frank's being like, look, if you just make them hold more capital, they're safer, so they don't have to do all these other things. And so, so the thing that uh, the Financial Choice Act offers for, for banks that do this, in particular that's probably very valuable to them, is that right now, really, really large banks have to go to the Fed before doing stuff like issuing a dividend or changing their business plan. Um, and in theory, once they have this, like, if they meet this leverage ratio under the Financial Choice Act, they won't have to ask for permission to do any of that stuff anymore. Um, of course, it's really interesting because, like, when you say a, a simple ratio, it's like assets. Um, there's, there's just like with people, like, there's assets that are really easy to move, and there's assets that are really hard to move. So. I don't know. I think I personally need a little bit more clarity around like what what that ratio actually looks like. Like, I don't know. It's a lot harder to sell a house than it is to just like give someone and to get that cash than it is just to have cash to to pay. And that analogy also holds for banks. Like, they have some assets that are really hard to offload, and some that are really easy to offload. So, like, how do they end up calculating that ratio? Um, the reason I don't know the answer to this yet is because I have not actually read all 600 pages of this act yet. <laughs> I'm working on it. I will do it eventually. Um, but so one of the reasons I haven't read all of it yet is because I know that it's going to go. It, it's passed the House, and it's about to go to the Senate. And the thing is that the Senate is probably, in my opinion, not going to let this pass as originally written. There's probably going to be quite a few amendments, and the the language is probably going to change quite a lot if it passes at all. And here's another really important point about, so they're calling, you know, if a bank holds enough capital to satisfy this simplified leverage ratio under the Financial Choice Act, they're calling that an off-ramp, okay? And so, mm. the, the off-ramp being that, you know, you can get off the highway with all these other regulations. Well, one of the really interesting 
regulations that is looking like the Financial Choice Act is trying to attack and would allow these big banks in particular to avoid. And let me let me just read this from from the, the, the executive summary of the Financial Choice Act. It says, it will exempt banking organizations that have made qualifying capital elections from any federal law, rule, or regulation that provide limitations on mergers, consolidations, or acquisitions of assets or control, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so what does that mean? So it, through the 1970s and 1980s, the banking industry deregulated. It allowed banks to open up, have operate branches, and allow banks to operate across interstate lines, which is something that in the past they generally were not allowed to do. Well, the, pre- the quid pro quo in that case was that they were going to allow these banks to grow and do all of these things and have more flexibility in terms of their operations. But on the other side of that, they wanted to stop these things from getting so enormous that if one of them were to fail, it would basically wipe out all the wealth of the United States. And so they did that by saying that, look, if you hold 10% or more of the nation's deposits, you are not allowed to then acquire another depository institution. So it would be like, and, and right now there are three banks that fit that, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. So right now, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America they cannot go out and buy any other banks. They're not allowed to. They because they hold ten each each one of them holds more than ten percent of the nation's deposits. Under this, under the Financial Choice Act, if I'm reading it correctly, it is saying that so long as those banks hold enough capital to meet that threshold in the act, they would then be free to then basically to, to merge together or to buy other banks. So you could theoretically in this case a merger between J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, the two biggest banks in the country. And I, mean, I, I really doubt that that would happen because their branches, their, 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 their branch bases completely overlap, yeah, overlap each other. So there'd be too much redundancy in, order, in, in doing that. But it, it certainly does, you know, people should think about, is that something we want to do? Is, do we want our, each you know, an individual bank to hold say 25% or say 50% of the nation's deposits. Like, is that, is, is that a direction we want to go in, given the fact that since this, the Civil War, more than 17,000 banks have failed? So it, it's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of a really overwhelming thing to think about. Um, we need to wrap up because we've been here for a while. Um, it's partially just because there's so much stuff in this act to discuss. Like, there's so many little things that could end up having really big impacts. Um, and we'll continue to track the progress of the bill. Like I mentioned earlier, I really, really do not think that this is going to get through the Senate completely unchanged. Um, so we'll talk about that more when we know more. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say, Maxfield? You know, I, I think that's it. I mean, just the only other thing is just that it, it would dramatically impact the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We could talk about that on a different show because that kind of deserves its own conversation. Yeah. Um, but again, just to kind of leave it, leave leave off at the same point I made at the very beginning. You know, this is neither the Financial Choice Act, just like the Dodd Frank Act, is neither good nor bad. It's just a reflection of the swinging of the pendulum back and forth between regulators and industry. We've seen this many times in the past. And generally, when the pendulum swings, regardless of the direction in which it swings, it goes too far. Dodd-Frank went too far. The Financial Choice Act went too far. So to your point, Gabby, 
when this goes through the Senate, it's likely that they're going to tailor it back. Yeah, that I that just seems very likely, especially given everything that we've seen during this administration so far. Um, who knows what will happen? Things in D.C. either move at breakneck pace or very, very slowly. So we'll we'll keep you guys up to date. Don't worry. And if you guys have any questions, definitely email us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at MF Industry Focus and let us know what you'd like to hear about next. Um, if you tweet us at MF Industry Focus, I am actually now in charge of our Twitter feed. So, yeah, that'll actually be me responding to you. Um, Thank you, Austin, for listening to this very long episode about financial regulation. Of course. (laughs) Yeah, he's looking at me like, you owe me one, bud. He's asleep, yeah. (laughs) Just just another Monday. All right. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I hope everyone has a really great week. I hope that your week is less stressful than mine. I get stressed out every time we talk about politics on this show. So I'm going to go take an antacid and eat some lunch. Everyone have a great day. 